So I'm Gary, I've got the second Bible reading. So the second Bible reading is from Esther 4, 1 to 17. So it's on page 488 of your Pew Bible, uh, or you can follow along on your mobile phones or behind me. Uh, so Esther 4, 1 to 17. <clears throat> when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes off and put sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was a great mourning amongst the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maidens and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatach, one of, her, uh, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to her to attend to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatach went out to Mordecai, in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Hathman had, had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathach went back and reported to Esther that Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman to be to approach the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days had passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent this time, relief and devast uh, devastation for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews that are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast with you. Do. Then this is done. I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I'll perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all that Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord.
Uh, thanks, Gareth. It would be uh, good if you could keep your Bible open. And if you're a note taker, you'll find the, um, the outline of the talk in your handout so you can um, follow along there and take notes. Now, I'm going to pray as we make a start and then we'll begin. So let's pray. Uh, Father above, uh, we thank you that uh, you are precious, that you are powerful, and that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And we ask that you would help us to be people of the word, that we might be known for our love of your word and that it might be a light, for our, a light to our feet and food for our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in a battle that you just had no chance of winning? Have you ever been up against someone, competing against someone in something that you had no chance of beating them at? Uh, this happened to me. I can remember one time where it did, or many times, but one in particular sticks in my mind. Uh, so I played a lot of uh, local AFL football, and um, one time I played against a, quite a famous former AFL player, and so this is who I played against. Some of you might be familiar with him. So this is Lance Whitnell. So he's quite a famous AFL player. I'll just tell you a little bit about him. So he played uh, 216 AFL games, so many, many games. He kicked almost 350 goals. He captained Carlton at one point. Uh, he was also in the All-Australian team one year, which means basically he was in the best team for that year. And so he's quite a, um, quite a famous, well-known AFL player. But I played him a little bit after his AFL time, and it's fair to say he'd let himself go a little bit. And so this is what he looked like at the time. So you can tell not in, um, not in peak fitness condition. And so looking at him, I thought, yeah, I can beat him. He looks old and he looks overweight and he looks so slow and this will be so easy. We'll beat him easily. But you know what happens? The problem about him is he is enormous. Like he's so wide that you can't get around him. Like you can't spoil it. If you're behind him, you just can't spoil the ball if it's in front of him. He's also got amazing hands and so he just mark anything that goes near him. And so basically his strategy for the day was he just start in a goal square when his midfield won the ball, he'd just lead in a straight line out. He'd mark it because he's so good at marking. And then from there, he'd just calmly walk back, kick the goal, walk back to the goal square. And that was just all he did all day. Goal square out, mark goal. Goal square out, mark goal. Do you know how many goals he kicked for the day? He kicked seven to half time when he went off because they were winning so easy. And it was just incredible. Like We looked at him and we thought, no, nah, we can beat this guy easy. But we just couldn't. He was too powerful, too good, and just slaughtered us. And I wonder if you've ever been in a similar situation. You've ever competed against someone at something, and you just couldn't beat them, no matter how hard you worked. Maybe it was at studying. At uni, there's a particular student. You just desperately want to beat. You want to wipe the smirk off their face, but they're too good. No matter how hard you work, they always get better marks than you. Maybe it's the time you went for a job interview and you desperately wanted that job, but you just couldn't compete with someone else that was applying for it. They were too experienced. They were too charismatic. Or maybe it was a time a loved one you had got diagnosed with a sickness and they fought hard. They fought until the end, but in the end, they couldn't stop death. Death came and claimed them. See, there's all sorts of things in life, all sorts of times in life where no matter how hard we work, we just can't win. And what we see in Esther 3 and 4 is that we're up against an enemy that's invincible, or at least an enemy that we can't beat. No matter how hard we work, we can't beat this enemy. This is an enemy far greater than a former AFL player, 
an enemy far greater than a straight A student, an enemy far greater than even death. Because what death does is steals away our physical life. But what this enemy seeks to do is steal away our spiritual life. And so what Esther 3 and 4 tells us is that this world is a battlefield. Even though it might not feel like it, we're at war. We're at war with an enemy that we just can't hope to beat. But even though that's the case, even though we're against an enemy that we have no hope of beating, what we see in Esther 3 and 4 is there's a mediator, someone who fights on our behalf, who wins for us, a champion to fight for us. And so that's what we see in Esther 3 and 4. We see the hatred of God's enemy and we see the hope of God's mediator. And so it starts off with God's enemy. He's a man named Haman and he's got such hatred, such deep hatred for God's people. Uh, Haman's a top advisor to the king, which means that everyone needs to bow down to him. Wherever he goes, everyone needs to bow down. It's a sign of respect. It's to show, yes, we know that you're in control. And did you see uh, Haman's ethnicity? Haman is an Agagite, uh, which means he's a descendant of the Amalekites. Uh, for some, those of you with a bit of wider Bible knowledge, this might be familiar who they are. But the background of the Amalekites is that uh, they were enemies of the Jewish people. And in 1 Samuel 15, uh, God told his people to completely wipe out the Amalekites, to eliminate them, to annihilate them. The, the God's people didn't do that. They spared some of them. And now what we see centuries later is that this is coming back to bite them. Their disobedience earlier is coming back to get them because this old enemy of their people is still there, is still alive and going. And so there's this kind of deep ethnic tension between the two. So this, this is God's enemy and this hatred that he's got is centuries old. This is an old hatred. And so, uh, so Mordecai, one of the heroes in the story, sees this enemy of God's and he refuses to bow down. He says, no, I won't bow down to the enemy of God's people. Everyone else might do it, but I'm not. How does Haman respond to this? Well, he's enraged, he's furious, his eyes are popping out of his head, there's veins all over his forehead. And see what he then does? Have a look at verse 6. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, Haman scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. See what he does? He decides not just to kill Mordecai, but to kill all of Mordecai's people. And at first it might seem like a bit of an overreaction. We look at it and we say, who cares? Like, why is he getting so unhappy? Why is he going to kill this whole nation just because one man won't bow to him? It seems like such an overreaction. But what we've got to remember, what we've got to realise what's going on here, is that this is deeper than that. It's deeper than just one man refusing to bow to another man. This is a clash between God's enemy and between God's people. This is a hatred that's as deep as, as long as time. It's as ancient as time. This is a hatred that's centuries old. And it, this hatred won't stop until God's people are completely annihilated. And so then, to enact, enact that, we see Haman's plan. We see what he decides to do, and it's an incredibly cunning plan. It's incredible. He starts off by casting the purr. So basically, that was just like a dice, and he casts it to find out when he should eliminate God's people. 
Uh, the date that comes up is 11 months away, so he's got quite a bit of time to work out this plan. From there, he goes, on, goes to get the king on board. And did you see what he does? Did you see how cunning it is? He makes it look like God's people are being disrespectful to the king. Have a look at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from all of those other, of the other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interests to tolerate them. It's such a sneaky move. He makes it sound like to the king, like these people are bad news, like these people are causing issues and dividing his kingdom. But in fact, we know that's not true. There's no evidence that that's the case. And in fact, there's evidence against that. Because remember, just at the end of last chapter, one of the Jews, one of God's people, saved the king's life. If it wasn't for them, the king would be dead. So of course it's false that the, kings, that the Jews are causing issues for the king. But nevertheless, that's the angle he takes. And it's quite a cunning move. It's quite a sneaky move. Because of course the king's thinking, oh, okay, I've got to look after my kingdom. I've got to take care of it. So he decides, yeah, these, these people are no good. But then to kind of make sure that it gets over the line, do you see what else he does? He offers this incredible amount of money. Haman says, I'll give 10,000 talents to help this get done. And now that can seem like quite an abstract amount. We don't really know what it is. But to give you a bit of perspective, 10,000 talents is loosely 60% of the annual tax income in the Persian Empire. And so for Australia, our annual tax income is loosely $500 billion. And so 60% of that is loosely $300 billion. That's the kind of money we're talking about. It's an obscene amount of money, an absurd amount of money. But that's the incredible amount of money that Haman is willing to offer up to make sure that God's people are destroyed. It's such a cunning move. And it works. Because did you see the king's response? He's convinced. He's won over. He, said, he gives Haman his signet ring as a sign of authority. He says, here's my sign of authority. Go and do what you want. In fact, so convinced is he that he even knocks back the money. He says, don't worry about the money. I'll do it anyway. So Haman's cunning plan has worked so well. And then what we see, once it's kind of getting enacted, is we see the incredible callousness of this hatred. Did you notice it there? In verses 12 and 15, a royal edict goes out, an edict in all the languages of all the provinces to say, on this particular date, all of the Jews, all of God's people will be annihilated. Have a look at verse 13. It's so horrific. Have a look. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. It's chilling in its callousness. No one is to be spared. Everyone is to be exterminated. Young and old, women and children, everyone is to be killed. This hatred, so callous, it's so merciless. But perhaps what's most incredible of all is what the king and Haman do once this edict's gone out. Did you notice what they do? Have a look at verse 15. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out 
and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. How incredible is that? They sit down to drink. They've just issued a decree that will result in the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people. They've just condemned so many people to death. And what do they do? They sit down for a glass of wine. They sit down and they party together. They go and drink together. It's incredible. It's so callous. It doesn't concern them at all what they've just done. And it's contrasted with the people of Susa, the people of the city. They're bewildered. They don't understand why such a cruel and merciless edict has been given. What could possibly demand such a, uh, such a merciless fate? But, the, the, but God's enemy doesn't care. He's so callous. He just sits down and rejoices. This is what God's enemy is like. And of course, this is what God's enemy today is like. The enemy, of course, isn't Haman, a man who died millennia ago, but it's the enemy who is behind Haman, the enemy who's been behind all evils throughout the entirety of history. That enemy is the devil. The devil is the ultimate enemy of God. He's the enemy that's been at work right throughout history. He's the enemy who whispered in the ear of God's people in the Garden of Eden, causing them to doubt God's goodness and disobey, and thus brought about death. He's the enemy who stirred up, God, stirred up God's people while Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, causing them to build false idols and worship those false idols. He's the enemy who time and time again deceived God's people and led God's people astray right throughout the whole Old Testament. He's the enemy who filled the Pharisees and the teachers of the law with jealousy, who whipped the crowd into a frenzy, who helped Pilate to decide unjustly, also that Jesus might be crucified. And he's the enemy who continues like that today, who stirs up the envy we have in our hearts when we look at other people's lives, who makes us wish that that was ours. He's the enemy who stirs up a bitterness inside of us at a broken relationship, causing us to cherish and nurse, and cherish and nurse that pain and hurt. He's the enemy who whispers little doubts in our ears, causing us to attribute the worst of intentions to a workmate when they somehow do us wrong. He's the enemy who steers away the satisfaction we have with our husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend, causing us to look to others for satisfaction. He's the enemy who causes us to doubt God's goodness. This is the enemy that was at work in this time and it's the enemy that's at work in our time. See, what Esther 3 and 4 reminds us is that there is a spiritual war going on. There's a spiritual battle going on, and behind our enemy is the devil. The devil is our enemy. He's an enemy that wants nothing more than the complete and utter destruction of God's people. This is the enemy we're up against. An enemy who brings death and destruction, who brings doubt and despair. This is God's enemy, an enemy we can't possibly hope to defeat and you see kind of how Mordecai responds when he hears what this enemy's done, who this enemy is. Mordecai hears and he weeps, he wails, he mourns, he puts on sackcloth because he knows this is an enemy he can't defeat. This is an enemy who's about to bring about the destruction of God's people. This situation, it's so hopeless. They're so helpless. Or at least 
They would be if it wasn't for God's mediator. Because even though we're up against an enemy, we have no hope of beating. God's given us a mediator, someone to go before the king, to beg for mercy on behalf of God's people, to beg for salvation. We see it in Esther. And so the first thing we see is that this God's mediator is filled with compassion. Esther's off in a palace, and she doesn't hear what this edict is. She doesn't hear about the coming destruction of God's people. But what she does hear about is that Mordecai is weeping, that Mordecai is upset. And so she has compassion. She wants to know why he's so upset, and she sends out a servant to find out. And Mordecai tells this servant everything. He tells, her that, tells him the amount of money that's been offered for their destruction, he even gives a copy of the edict so Esther can see what it is. And did you then see what Mordecai urges Esther to do? Have a look at verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8. He also gave the servant a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, <coughs> Excuse me, uh, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. He urges Esther, go to the king, beg the king for salvation, beg the king to spare them. But of course, it's not as simple as that. Because did you see Esther's response? She says, anyone who goes before the king without being invited is killed. It's death to go before the king unless he's invited you. And so what Mordecai's asking her is to put herself in such great danger to risk her life on behalf of her people. And so this whole thing, it's balanced so precariously. We're left wondering, well, what will happen? How will Mordecai convince her to go? And so you see Mordecai's response. Have a look at verse 12 to 13. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think, because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. He warns her, don't think you'll be spared. Don't think you'll be safe. This hatred of God's enemy is so intense that he will hunt down every last one of God's people, even if that means hunting them down in a palace. And so he says, it is death to not act here. Even though it might be dangerous to go before the king, even though she's taking her life in her own hands when she does, it's death not to do it. But what's particularly amazing is the next bit. Did you see what he says in verse 14? Have a look. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Mordecai says deliverance will come. No matter what, God's people will be saved. See, Mordecai knows that even though there's a spiritual war going on, even though God's enemy is so filled with hatred, that God will save them. He knows of the promises that God's made to his people and of the ways God has acted upon those promises to protect his people. He knows of the covenant promises made to Abraham and then continued to Jacob and Isaac that God's people will be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. He knows God's made these promises. And he knows that God's worked to protect his people to make sure that these promises continue on. He knows of the protection and salvation God's given his people from slavery in Egypt. He knows of the salvation God's given his people as they, he parted the sea so they could flee. 
He knows of the salvation that God gave his people when he fed them in the desert and saved them from starvation. He knows of the salvation God gave when he stopped the sun in the sky so that God's army might defeat their enemies. He knows of these countless times where God has saved his people. And so he knows that even though there's a fight going on, even though there's a spiritual war going on, he knows that God will win. No matter what, God will win. See, even though this enemy might be so far above God's people in power, God is so much more powerful than this enemy. And he knows God will win. And so he tells, us, uh, tells Esther, if not through you, then someone else. No matter what, God will win. But if it's not through Esther, then he tells her, you and your family will perish. It's a stark warning to her. But he also encourages her. He says, maybe this is why you're put here. Have a look at 14 again. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. See, Mordecai knows that God will deliver his people, but he doesn't know how. And so he says, maybe it is through you. Maybe that's why you've been put in this position. Maybe it wasn't a coincidence all along. Maybe it wasn't a coincidence that uh, the king, that Xerxes, got unhappy at his queen Vashti because she didn't come in. Maybe it wasn't a coincidence that he then decided to find a new queen by holding a beauty pageant. Maybe it wasn't a coincidence that Esther just happened to be chosen to go to be part of that from all the women in the empire. Maybe it wasn't just a coincidence that she then won against all the other women in the empire. Maybe it wasn't a coincidence all along. Behind it all, God was at work, working his unseen plan. Preparing her, his mediator, for the salvation of his people. This is what, he says, maybe this is why God's put you here. Now, I think when we read this, these verses, it's easy to misinterpret it. It's easy to look at that and think, that's the same for us. God has put us where we are for a certain purpose. And in one sense, that's true. Romans 8 tells us that God's at work through all things, using us through all things. But I think what we do is sometimes falsely then apply it across and think that God must have put me in a situation for my own good so that I can develop my career more or so that I can get a better paying job or so that I can meet my future partner or whatever it is we think God has put me here for my particular good. But that's, of course, that's not what's actually happening here because why was Esther put there? Well, she was put there for the good of God's people, not for her own good, but for the good of God's people, for the salvation of God's people, for the working of God's plan. And so I think when we look at this and we think about how it applies to us, what we've got to remember is that, sure, God's put us where he's put us for a purpose, but it's not a purpose of our own benefit. It's for the building up of God's kingdom. And so we've got to reflect, why has God put me where he's put me? Why has God put me with the people he's put me? Why has God put me in the job he's put me in? It's all for the building of God's kingdom, for the honouring of God's name. And so we're left as the story continues. We wonder, how's Esther going to respond? And what we see is this incredible courage and commitment that Esther has. She says, I'll do it. And she wants everyone to fast for her, that is, to come before God and humble themselves before God. And she says, she and her maids will fast, that is, humble themselves and come before God. And once that's all been done, she'll go before the king. And it culminates in these wonderful kind of trust-filled words that she's got. 
If I perish, I perish. What an incredible display of faith. Have a look at verses 15 and 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. How wonderful is that? If I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. It's such commitment, such courage, such dependence on God. See, God's mediator brings hope for his people. God's mediator is courageously committed to this plan, no matter what the repercussions. But of course, there's more to the whole story than Esther, isn't there? Because Esther is merely a shadow of the mediator who came after her. Because while Esther is a mediator that brings hope to God's people, there's a mediator who brings a greater hope to God's people. Who's that mediator? Well, it's Jesus. I mean, think about the incredible similarities between Jesus and Esther. Esther went into a place of great power and judgment for the sake of her people. Jesus went into a place of even greater power and judgment for the sake of his people. Esther went there to plead for her people. Jesus went there to plead for his people. Esther faced the possibility of death for her people. Jesus faced the certainty of death for his people. There's so many similarities. But of course, there's also so many differences. Because Esther hesitated, but Jesus never wavered. Esther cared about her own well-being, at least at first. But Jesus always put the well-being of his people before his own. Esther saved her people from physical death, but Jesus saved his people from spiritual death. They're so similar, but so different. And it shows just how much greater Jesus is. Jesus, the ultimate mediator, who saved his people, not just from the anger of a king, but the righteous anger of the king of the whole universe. This is the hope of the Bible. This is the hope of a mediator who comes and saves God's people. And so what are we then to take from Esther 3 and 4? What are we to take from it? Well, I think two things. Firstly, beware the enemy. See, just like Haman, the enemy, our enemy, the devil, desires nothing more than to see God's people destroyed. That is what he's on about, that's what he wants, and that's what he works towards. And he'll do whatever he needs to to achieve that. And so he'll come to us when we've just lost our temper, and he'll whisper in our ear, they deserved it. That's okay, it's justified, it's their own fault. He'll come to us when we've stumbled again and we've looked at porn and he'll whisper in our ear, that's one time too many. God could never forgive you now. He'll come to us when we'll feel, feel hurt by people at church and he'll whisper in our ear, they don't love you, you shouldn't go back. He'll come to us when we're feeling lonely and he'll whisper in our ear, you're worthless, no one loves you. And of course, he'll come to us when we're feeling good, when we feel like we're winning the battle against sin, and he'll whisper in our ear, you don't need God, you're good enough as it is. This is what the devil does. He's out to seek our destruction. He wants nothing more than the complete destruction of God's people. And he does it through lies. 
So C.S. Lewis wrote quite a famous book. It's a good book. It's a fiction book, um, The Screwtape Letters. And what this book is about, a fiction book about a senior demon writing letters to a junior demon, giving him tips on how to wipe out God's people. And it's definitely worth reading. It's an easy book to read, so do check it out. But in the introduction, Lewis says this. He says, readers are advised that the devil is a liar. That's what the devil does. He distorts truth. He twists truth. And he uses lies to try and destroy God's people. See, we're at war with a dangerous enemy, an enemy who will do anything he can to destroy us. And so we need to beware. We need to beware this enemy. But we don't need to lose heart. Even though we beware this enemy, we trust our mediator, a mediator who is so much bigger, so much more powerful than this enemy. Because even though alone we have no hope of defeating this enemy, We're not alone. We've got Jesus, the great mediator who defeats this enemy for us. And so we trust our mediator. We trust him and trust what he says. And so when we're feeling lonely, when we're feeling like no one cares about us and the devil's there whispering in our ears that no one loves you, no one cares about you, what do we do? Well, we trust our mediator who tells us that we're infinitely loved by God, valued by God, treasured by God. When we've stumbled yet again and looked at porn and the devil's there whispering in our ear, telling us that's one time too many. God can never forgive you now. What do we do? Well, we trust our mediator. We believe our mediator when he says that his death is sufficient, that all our sins are forgiven. When we're feeling hurt and we're feeling let down by people at church and the devil's there and he whispers in our ears, don't go back. They're not worth your time. What do we do? Well, we trust our mediator. We trust what he says, that his people are a loving family and that he loves us. When we're feeling like we're winning the battle against sin and the devil's there and he whispers in our ear, you don't need God, you're good enough how you are. What do we do? Well, we trust our mediator that he's the only way to get right before God. See, in all things, we trust our mediator. We trust that he's in control and we trust that he will defeat the enemy for us. See, this is what Esther 3 and 4 is about. It tells us that we're at war. This world is a battlefield. But we don't need to be afraid because we have a mediator who is so powerful who will win the war for us. This is the hope of Esther, the hope of a mediator. Though we face an enemy far greater than us, we have a mediator far greater than that I'm going to pray and thank God. Uh, Please pray with me.